Please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 6 as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke. This morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 of Luke chapter 6. And if if you're turning there, let me just again invite you out this evening for our, our annual meeting as we talk about ways that God has worked in our church this last year things that he may uh, have in store for us for the future, and eat ice cream. So it's going to be an exciting, exciting time. Look forward to, to seeing you out at the farmhouse, and directions are there in your, your bulletin. Well, please stand with me as we read God's Word together this morning. Luke chapter 6, verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God? And took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And, he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 6, on another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. They were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. You may be seated. God encourages, us, strengthen us, instruct us through his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you as as a holy God, and as we've sung worship to you this morning, as we heard the the song, go through your many attributes, we are in, in awe of you, and we recognize that we have no standing before you, a holy God, on our own. Our only standing before you is based upon the righteousness of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray your protection on this church this morning. I pray that you would protect us from seeking to establish a relationship with you on the basis of our own works. Father, may you provide for us a relationship with you through faith in your son, Jesus, and may we be completely, totally, and utterly dependent upon him. We pray this in his name for your glory. Amen. Well, this text before us uh, is a text I preached on some seven years ago. And as I preached on this text seven years ago, I, I began with an illustration that I believe really captures the spirit of this text, the subject matter. And so I'm going to share that illustration again. My apologies to those of you who were at Bethany Baptist uh, seven and a half years ago and heard this illustration before. It's by a man named Theodore Geisel, also known as Dr. Seuss. It's from his book entitled, Did I Ever Tell You How Lucky You Are? And in this book, an older man is talking to a young lad, and he's telling him how fortunate he should consider himself. And he says, uh, some people are 
much more, oh, ever so much more, oh, muchly, much, much more unlucky than you. He goes through and he tells him different people who are in circumstances that are less fortunate than his own. One of the groups that he tells him about are a group of people called the Hotch Hotchers. He tells the young lad, Oh, the jobs people work at out west near Hotch Hotch. There's a Hotch Hotcher bee watcher. His job is to watch, is to keep both his eyes on the lazy town bee. A bee that is watched will work harder, you see. Well, he watched and he watched, but in spite of his watch, that bee didn't work any harder, not much. So then somebody said, our old bee-watching man just isn't bee-watching as hard as he can. He ought to be watched by another hotch-hotcher. The thing that we need is a bee-watcher-watcher. Well, the bee-watcher-watcher watched the bee-watcher. He didn't watch well, so another hotch-hotcher had to come in as a watch-watcher-watcher. And today all the hotchers who live in hotch-hotch are watching on bee-watcher, watchering watch, watching the watcher who's watching that bee. You're not a hotch-hotcher. You're lucky, you see. Now, in my mind, <laughs> I just have small children. I, <laughs> parents know that's nothing impressive. I've read the story a million times. Uh, that's never happened before. I don't know how to go on. Um, <laughs> benediction. Now, those last lines in the poem are, are, in my mind, dripping with irony, right? He says, uh, you're not a hot chotcher, you're lucky, you see. Now, it's dripping with irony because, as Dr. Seuss knows, we are hot chotchers. <laughs> we do watch one another. Sometimes we believe that the better we scrutinize a person, the harder they'll work. And the same is true in a church. Sometimes we believe that growth in godliness, sanctification, growth in holiness occurs best when lives are placed underneath a microscope. Ezekiel 33.10, people say, Surely our transgressions and our sin are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? You see what they're saying? God, our sins are heavy upon us. We're rotting away because of them. How then can we live? And I'm sure that many of you have asked that question as well. God, in light of your holiness, in light of our rottenness, how can we live? How can we live in obedience to you in a way that brings honor and glory to you? How can we do it? And let me suggest this morning that many of us have come up with some rather ingenious ideas. Some of us have said this, okay, uh, here are the things that the world does over here. And I know that the world is bad, and so everything that the world does and is involved in, I'm going to do something different. So if the world watches movies, I'm not going to watch movies. If the world is engaged in sporting activities, I'm not going to be engaged in sporting activities. And all the things that the world does, I'm going to put on a list, and then I'm going to make sure that I don't do the things on that list, and maybe as I don't do the things on the list and other people watch me to make sure I don't and I watch other people to make sure that they don't do the things on the list, then I'll, then I'll live rightly before God. I'll live in obedience to him. Or sometimes we do this. We make lists this way. We said, okay, here's a sinful activity. Here's something that's clearly sin, and I recognize that God's word calls this sin. I don't want to do this thing that's sin, and so what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to put up a barrier between myself and that sin, which can be helpful. 
And then I'm going to call that barrier sin also. And I'm going to watch and make sure that other people don't do even that thing that I consider a step before sin, and I'm not going to do it, and we're going to put it on a list. Or watch each other. For example, let's say that you've, you've struggled with uh, things that you watch on television. There's programs on television that you know don't honor, honor God, and when you watch them, you're like, I know that's a wrong thing for me to be involved in. That's clearly sin. And so what I'm going to do to protect myself from that sin is I'm going to uh, not have cable television, for example. And for you, perhaps that's a, a very healthy thing for your spiritual life, but then you make cable television sin. And if someone has cable television, then, then they're sinning, and you make sure that you don't have cable television, it's, it's a, you put it on a list. And you have a list. You watch other people, and they watch you. Or, sometimes we get prepackaged lists. We're part of a church that has a certain sort of traditions or legalistic rituals and rules, and so we all have this list, and we watch each other, and we have them watch us, and make sure we don't do those things on the list, because if we do those things on the list, surely we're in sin. Let me tell you, lists are an oppressive way to live the spiritual life. Hotcherism does not produce godliness. Creating lists for yourself and having other people watch you and watch other people is not going to cause you to grow in godliness. I want to communicate a truth to you this morning that I hope will be very freeing. And that truth is this. Submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord is the essence of obedience. Submitting your life to the Lord Jesus Christ is the essence of obedience. You want to ask yourself the question, in light of my sin, how then shall I live? Let me encourage you with this truth from Luke chapter 6. The essence of obedience is coming to God and saying, I'm going to submit my life to your son, Jesus Christ. He is going to be the Lord of my life. I'm going to turn from those things that cause me to be in disobedience to him, and I'm going to set him as Lord of my life and submit all that I do to him. And it's not going to be about a list of rules. It's not going to be about a list of, rule, of rules that other people come up with. It's going to be about being obedient to him, submitting my life to him. And so as I come to God's word and I read it and I understand what God's will for my life is, I'm coming to God's word in the context of a relationship with Jesus Christ, not in the context of a list of rules. That's the essence of obedience. The essence of growing in godliness, being in obedience to God, is not hotcherism, list-keeping. It's in submitting your life to Jesus Christ as Lord. Let me show you how that's true from God's word here. In Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, let's begin in verse 1. It says, it's on a Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some ears of corn, rubbing them in their hands. And so here's the picture. The, the date is uh, some Sabbath, and the location is a field. Now what would have happened in the summer months, this field would have been baked by the scorching summer sun. The ground would be so hard it couldn't be plowed. Then the autumn rains would come. They'd soften the ground. The farmer would come out there with his plow, plow the fields, and sow the seeds. 
during the winter months, an occasional storm would come in off the Mediterranean and water his fields, and the grain would begin to grow. And Jesus and his disciples are probably walking through this grain field sometime in, in April. The cold winter months are behind them. The hot, scorching summer months when the temperature will rise some 25 degrees are off in the future, and it's probably a, a nice April day, maybe about 70 degrees, that Jesus and his disciples are walking through this grain field. And as they walk through the grain field, Luke tells us, the disciples pick some of the heads of grain, and they eat them. And then at the very end of verse 1, he draws our attention to the fact that in order to eat them, they were rubbing them, uh, rubbing the, the heads of grain on their hand and then eating the seeds. If you've ever seen kind of a scary movies, they seem to often take place, the setting in a field, and something kind of pops out of a field. Well, Pharisees in this story kind of pop out of a field. There they are. We're not sure how they got there. They're not sure what they were doing there. Maybe they're just traveling along. They see this activity that Jesus' disciples are engaged in. And suddenly they're pointing a finger of accusation at Jesus, and they're saying this. Why are you, or that is you guides, it's plural there, doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And you look at verse 1 and you say, okay, picking heads of grain, eating them as they're walking. Pharisees jumping out of the field, accusing the disciples of breaking the law on the Sabbath. What are they talking about? As these Pharisees uh, point their fingers of accusation at Jesus and his disciples, what's their deal? What are they upset about? To understand what they're upset about, you kind of have to see inside the, the head of the Pharisees. In fact, let's take one of the guys, let's say there's a short, stubby guy here on the end. Let's, let's look into his brain and see what's he thinking as he accuses Jesus of violating the Sabbath. Keep your finger there in Luke chapter 5 and turn back with me to Exodus chapter 19. I believe if we were able to, to look inside his head, we'd see that he's thinking about events that took place some 1,400 years ago. From, the, from his perspective, in 1445 B.C., the Israelites have just left Egypt as we come to Exodus chapter 19. They've left Egypt some three months ago. They've come to Mount Sinai. We see this in verse 16. It says, on the mor they're, out, they're, they're camped around Mount Sinai. It says, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a, a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Verse 17, And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And so there's Moses going on the mountain. The mountain's covered in smoke. There's this, the sounds of the trumpet, and the mountain's shaking, and, and God answers Moses in a thunder. And then God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Look at Exodus chapter 20. The fourth commandment, on Mount Sinai that God gives Moses concerns the Sabbath. Verse 8 of Exodus chapter 20 says this, Remember the sixth day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, 
your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So I believe as this Pharisee points his finger of accusation at Jesus and his disciples, in his mind he's thinking back to those events that took place in 1445 B.C. and believing that Jesus' disciples are violating that commandment that was given by God on Mount Sinai with the mountain filled with smoke and the mountain shaking and the, the thundering, that the disciples are in violation of that. You think, well, what? <laughs> How's he getting that? Well, let's peer a little bit deeper into this Pharisee's mind. And as you peer a little bit deeper into the Pharisee's mind, you see he's not looking back at those events that took place 1400 years ago through perfect lenses he's looking through the lenses of pharisaical tradition you see we have this event the events on mount sinai in 1445 bc and then we have all the rest of the events of the old testament the historical books the prophetic books and then we come to a section in scripture that in our bibles is blank it's that page between the old testament and the new testament but for the Pharisees, that page isn't blank at all. During that time period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, many commentators had, many commentaries, oral commentaries on the law had arisen. We talked before about how the Pharisees kind of begun, began during that time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Pharisees were concerned about righteousness, about protecting people from becoming like the Greeks around them. And so the Pharisees had developed a complex system of oral laws and traditions that helped them understand and apply what we consider the Old Testament. So, for example, there was something called the 40 save 1. The 40 save 1 were 40 minus 1, 39 classes of work. And the oral tradition said this, there are 30, 40 save 1, 39 classes of work, and this was to define the types of work that one could not do on a Sabbath. The 40 classes of work, uh, the, the 40 save 1 classes of work are these, sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, cleansing crops, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wood, washing or beating or dyeing it, spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying a knot, loosening a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing in order to sew two stitches, hunting a gazelle, slaughtering or flaying or salting or curing its skin, scamping or cutting it up, writing two letters, erasing in order to write two letters, mowing your lawn. No, didn't say mowing your lawn. <laughs> Those are, these are the 40 classes of work save one, said the Pharisees. You say, well, that's, that's very specific. That's where you'd be wrong. They got more specific. <laughs> Because then the question became, okay, I can't, I can't prepare food, but what is preparing food? I can't thresh, but what is threshing? And so there were more oral laws that developed. It said this, it said, uh, picking, picking grain is like reaping. Rubbing it in one's palm is like threshing and winnowing and preparing food. As one commentator said during this time period, they said the, the rules about the Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair. For scripture is scant, and rules are many. And so as this Pharisee looks at Jesus and accuses him and his disciples of violating the Sabbath, or Jesus allowing his disciples to violate the Sabbath, he's not looking just at the events that took place 
on Mount Sinai, he's looking at those events through the lenses of his tradition. That should be a great caution to us, shouldn't it? As we think about right and wrong and what's biblical and not biblical. Jesus answers thusly, verse 3. Jesus says, answer them, have you not read? And as I mentioned two weeks ago, I, I think Jesus is practicing a little bit of godly sarcasm here. Hey, you really got this oral law thing down pretty well, but haven't you read? <laughs> Don't you remember this teaching in Scripture? What David did when he was hungry, he and those were, who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. What Jesus is referring to here is something that took place in 1 Samuel 21.6. Now, the Old Testament law in Leviticus 24.9, Leviticus 24.9 says that this bread that's uh, placed close to the, the altar in the Holy of Holies, there's this bread that is uh, only to be eaten by the priest. It's its purpose is for the priest to eat it. Now, in 1 Samuel, what happened is this. 1 Samuel 21, David is running from Saul. He comes to Himelech, the priest, and he says, Look, uh, I'm hungry. Me and my men are hungry. In fact, David isn't uh, completely truthful with Ahimelech. He tells him he's on a miss uh, mission from Saul. And Ahimelech uh, tells him, We don't have any food here. And David says, what about the bread? And Ahimelech says, well, that's, you know, that's the only bread we have, this, this bread of the, the presence. And so Ahimelech gives David this bread that was designed for the priests. Its purpose was for the priests. I believe what Jesus is saying here is that Ahimelech did something that was acceptable to do. That ceremonial law, even God-given divine ceremonial law, was not meant to always be absolute in its application. Even though the purpose of this bread was for the priests, that didn't mean that it couldn't be used for other people in times of emergency. Ceremonial law was never meant to trample people. Jesus says you're missing the big picture of God's law as you're focused on the minutia. The Pharisees have no answer. And then in verse 5, Jesus gives what I believe is the central point of the text. As they fail to give him an answer, in verse 5, he says, And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus has used the phrase, Son of Man, one other time, so far in the Gospel of Luke, it's in the last chapter where he's talking to the, the Pharisees as he's about to heal the, the man who's paralyzed. Again, talking about his authority. What I believe Jesus is saying is this. As the giver of the law, he has authority over its application. You see, the Pharisee that we looked at, remember? He's looking at what happened on Mount Sinai through the lens of tradition. Even if he wasn't looking at it through the lens of tradition, he would at least be looking at it through the text. He'd have to, to read about it. Jesus was actually on Mount Sinai giving the law. 
He was there with the, the smoke and the, the thunder, and, and he, as God, was there giving the law. As the Son of Man, as God himself, Jesus has complete and total authority over the application of how the Sabbath is used. Let me draw your attention to two principles here, then. As we kind of close verse 5, this first section of Scripture, there's a little bit of tension. The Pharisees have been focused on the minutia, failed to understand the heart behind the law. Jesus has given them a new principle for them. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man has authority over how the Sabbath is going to be applied. The tension in the story is, now, how are the Pharisees going to respond to this new truth that Jesus has given them? Let's leave that tension there for just a moment and look at two two of our three principles we're going to look at this morning. The first principle is this. Submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord means freedom, not oppression. Remember, the main idea that we're looking at is that submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord is the essence of obedience. When we ask ourselves, how then shall we live? How shall we govern ourselves in light of our sinfulness? The answer we come to is submitting our, ourselves to Jesus Christ as Lord is the essence of obedience. Now, what does that look like? What does it mean? The first thing it means, we see in this text, is that submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord means freedom, not oppression. The Pharisees had, had uh, orchestrated a very oppressive system. They had designed a system that was that was uh, supposed to keep people from sinning, but in reality, it kept them oppressed. It was stifling. Whitney and I were at a church uh, for a, a brief period of time that had just come out of a very uh, legalistic background, a legalistic um, setting. This group of people, very dear people, loved the Lord, uh, loved one another, but they had, they had fallen under some very bad, just terrible leadership. What they would do is they would, they would come to church uh, five or six days a week, and a, a video would be played, and it was kind of a, a teacher, and they, they were supposed to follow this, this teacher's teaching. He was like he was the only person qualified to teach God's Word, and they would take out notebooks and write down everything that he said, and they'd have their Bible right there, and they'd, he'd be very specific in his applications of, as how they were to live, and then he'd, he'd finish speaking, and this is what they would do. No kidding. They would close up the notebook, close up their Bible, and then stick it underneath their chairs. There wasn't even a thought that maybe they would need to, to read God's word on their own because this, this teacher was going to, to tell them what to do. It was, it was obviously almost like a cult. Oppressive. When this group of people decided to, to leave this, this, this teaching, this kind of this, uh, this system, you could just see how, how freeing their lives had been over the last several years. We kind of came to the church about a year, year and a half, two years after they, they had left the system. There was just great life within them because they had been so oppressed by legalism. Submitting your life to Jesus Christ means freedom, not oppression. J.C. Ryle, as he looks at this text and, and sees the Pharisees interacting with Jesus, he says, notice how important trifles are to hypocrites. They're not passionate about the big things in God's law. They're, they're passionate about the little things, and not just the little things in God's law, but their application of those little things. It's a story of a, a pastor. Maybe you've heard this story before, but he woke up one morning to find in the winter that the path to the church had been covered in, in uh, snowdrift, and there was no way for him to travel safely to church. But this pastor, being the ingenious uh, uh, person that he was, thought, well, you know what? I'll just, uh, the, the, the pond is frozen over. I'll just strap on my ice skates and, 
skate across the pond to church, right around the snowdrift. Well, he gets to church, and the deacons are scandalized that this uh, pastor would be ice skating on a Sunday. And they quickly hold a, a leadership meeting, and they decide whether or not to censor the pastor or pastor or not. And they, de- they determine this. They say they're going to ask him a question. And his answer to the question will determine whether or not they punish him. And the question is, did you enjoy it? <laughs> if you enjoyed it, then it was obviously uh, you know, carefree on the Sabbath, you're going to be punished and reprimanded. If you didn't enjoy it, then it wasn't labor, and you were just trying to be, to be smart and how to get to to the church. That's an oppressive system. <laughs> That's not freedom. That's oppression. Let me give you some, some questions to ask yourself to, to see whether or not you're submitting to Christ and experiencing the freedom that comes with submitting yourself to Christ. Here's three questions of application for this, from this first principle. The first question is this. Do you view God's commandments as burdensome? Do you view God's commandments as burdensome? If you would, turn to 1 John chapter 5. And if you've struggled with legalism, if you've struggled with hotchotcherism, oppression, I would encourage you to memorize 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Here's what John writes. Very, very important verses for us as we think about God's instructions to us. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. You see, obeying God's commandments now is placed in the context of a relationship. Then he says in verse 3, notice this, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For those of you who've struggled with, with lists in your Christian life, trying to uh, work about your own sanctification, this should be a, a very freeing passage for you. God's commandments are an outflow of his love for you. He gives you his commandments because he loves you. That's a, a relationship, and his commandments are not burdensome. If you are struggling under the burden of oppression, you are two possibilities. The first possibility is that you haven't entered into relationship with God. It's possible that you're trying to do all the things that God has called you to do without the context of a relationship, and that's impossible. That is impossible. That's legalism. No one is going to enter into a relationship with God by following a bunch of rules. After we've entered into a relationship with God by faith in his son, Jesus Christ, recognizing that we're sinners, recognizing we need to place our faith in Jesus Christ, and placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, then come the rules. And the rules are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. They're part of that context of a loving relationship. And so if you find God's commandments burdensome, the first thing I would tell you is perhaps you haven't entered into a relationship with God. The second thing I would caution you with, if you find God's commandments burdensome, and you're in a relationship with him, my suggestion would be, those aren't God's commandments. Those aren't God's commandments. The possibility, the potential, is that you're following someone else's commandments, someone else's instructions about how they think you ought to live. Submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord means freedom, not oppression. The first question to ask yourself here is, do you view God's commandments as burdensome? Uh, secondly, 
do you evaluate your relationship with God by an arbitrary standard? Do you evaluate your relationship with God by some arbitrary standard? During the second century, there was a monk who uh, approached his leader and said, look, I, I want to know, or a young man who approached a monk, saying, I, I want to know how to follow God. The monk said this, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to get rid of. Get rid of colored clothes, for one thing. Get rid of everything in your wardrobe that's not white. Stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments and don't eat any more white bread. You cannot, if you are sincere about obeying Christ, take warm baths or shave your beard. To shave is to lie against him who created us to attempt to improve on his work. What? <laughs> it's arbitrary. You think, how silly. We've got him today, folks. We have him today. We have arbitrary rules that we've established. We say, look, if you really want to be godly, these are the rules that you've got to follow. I encourage you to think through the things that you believe are, are necessary for sanctification and ask yourself, am I doing these things because I'm submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord in this area or because it's some arbitrary standard that either myself or someone else has come up with? Just this past week, someone was talking to me about ministry opportunities that, that they thought would be uh, great uh, to, to be involved in. And they asked me as they talked about these ministry opportunities, is this something that you desire to do? And I said, you know what, honestly, it'd be nice, but no. <laughs> it'd be nice, but no. There's standards that people are always going to have for your conduct that aren't necessarily what God's standards are for your conduct are. Third question to ask yourself is this, uh, do you watch others? Do you watch others? Watching others being a hotch-hotcher is going to destroy both you and them spiritually. It's an oppressive way to live. It's an oppressive way. It's an oppressive environment to be in. I was talking with a pastor this past week who told me about a church he used to be a part of. He said, I used to have to come to business meetings with my phone records. And the church would talk about my phone records to see if I'd called the right people the right number of times. Said, oh, dear. <laughs> Praise God that I'm not in a church that wants my phone records. Accountability is great. Uh, godly accountability is a wonderful thing that God can use in the, our sanctification process. But watching others under a microscope will lead to no one's, no one's sanctification. So the first principle is submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord means freedom, not oppression. The, the second principle that I encourage you with here is submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord produces worship, not work. Submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord produces worship, not work. Again, look at verse 5. We have the controlling principle of the text here. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. As we are in a right relationship with Jesus Christ, we are fulfilling God's instructions concerning the law. In fact, let me just take a moment here. I, I think that an obvious question that comes as we look at a passage on the Sabbath, and we've talked about this before, is, is okay, now, now what about the law? What about the Ten Commandments? What relationship do the Ten Commandments and, and God's law have on the believer today? Remember when, we, remember when we went through the book of Ephesians, we talked about what the purpose of the Old Testament law is or was. 
The Old Testament law, I suggest, as we went through the, the book of Ephesians, the Old Testament law was a cultural phenomenon. It was a set of instructions given to a group of people at a certain moment in time. The law was for the nation of Israel before the coming of the Messiah, showing them how they were to live in obedience to God. Now, within that Old Testament law were timeless truths, uh, truths that reveal the character and the desire of God. And as we come to the Old Testament law as believers, we we read it, and as we see the character of God and his instructions regarding moral uh, rightness, then we we glean information from that. But the law itself was a a cultural phenomenon. It, It contained timeless truths, but it didn't bring about salvation. That was still by faith. The law had been perverted by the Israelites, and in fact, the law became a a barrier between the the Jews and the Gentiles. The law we also see in Scripture was was fulfilled in Christ. The interesting thing about the Ten Commandments, however, is that nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated several times in the New Testament, because I believe the Ten Commandments very clearly address the the character of God and his desire for people regarding holiness and conduct with other people. And those things have never changed. In fact, it's interesting too, as we think about it, as we pursue Christ, we obey his moral law, and we we fulfill the the heart of the Ten Commandments. In fact, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2 for just a moment, if you would. I think this should help us as we think about This principle of submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord produces worship, not work, especially in context of the Sabbath. When I preached on this passage before, as I mentioned seven years ago, I talked about being in obedience to the the Ten Commandments and specifically the Sabbath, making Jesus Christ Lord of your Sabbath. And and the heart of what I want to get at here is that uh, we're disobedient to the spirit of the fourth commandment if we fail to worship Christ in all things, right? And so if on a Sabbath, if I've engaged in worship of Jesus Christ, I've, I've been obedient to the Sabbath. If I have failed to be in worship to Jesus Christ, I've been disobedient to the Sabbath. Whitney asked me last night, she goes, now you're not going to tell people they can't mow their lawn tomorrow, right, on Sunday? I said, no, I don't think so. We'll see how it goes. Um, seven years ago when I preached on this passage, I was still relatively new to Illinois, and I, I, I encouraged people, you know what, just make the, the Sabbath a, a day of of worship for you and God and, and uh, be obedient to the fourth commandment by making Jesus Christ Lord of all your week and especially uh, thinking about having a special day in which to, to worship him in a, in a special way and devote yourself. And I said, you know what, and, and today, maybe you just don't even turn on the TV. Now, unbeknownst to me, uh, by the way, Chris Jenkins uh, calls this the worst sermon I've ever preached seven years ago. Unbeknownst to me, that was Selection Sunday. Uh, which, you know, apparently for you basketball fans is the day that the brackets are selected in the NCAA. Uh, didn't know that. Uh, didn't make the same application in second and third service that I made in, in first. But anyway, uh, we, we obey the, the fourth commandment as we worship God. It's not about the type of work that we're doing. Here's what uh, Colossians, we read in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. Paul writes, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That is the essence of fulfilling that fourth commandment, 
is not about these man-made rules and traditions and regulations. It's, it's also not even about a cultural phenomenon that was the law. The essence of being obedient to God is found in the person of Jesus Christ. As you think about whether or not you're going to be obedient to God on the new Sabbath, on a Sunday, the question is, are you going to be submitting yourself to Jesus Christ as Lord? Are the things that you're engaged in on a Sunday designed to bring you closer to God or further away from God? Are you worshiping God with your activity, or are you failing to worship God with your activity? It's true for a Sunday, a Monday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday, a Thursday, a Friday, a Saturday. And the sad thing to me about Sundays in our culture is that Sundays used to be a day in which a family could focus more uh, intently upon the Lord. And now it seems that uh, the, our culture is comfortable not only scheduling things on Sunday afternoons, Sunday evenings, but even during the time of our week that's been set aside for worship of God as a corporate body. And so I am not going to be a, a hotch-hotcher this morning and give you a, a list of things to do or not do on your Sunday, but I would encourage you to make sure that you're obedient to the spirit of the fourth commandment by worshiping Jesus Christ as Lord, not just during your Sunday, but in all times. Well, let's move on to the rest of the text here. Verse 6 says this. Uh, okay, remember the tension. Remember the tension. Jesus Christ has just given them this new principle. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees have this new understanding. The question is, how are they going to respond to it? We see in verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. Verse 7, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he, or not he would heal on the Sabbath. Okay, see the picture here. Here's Jesus teaching. There's a man in the audience, withered hand. Pharisees are off on the side, watching. What is Jesus going to do? It's kind of an absurd picture. The Pharisees know that Jesus has the capability, the ability to help this poor man with a paralyzed right hand, and instead of being excited about Jesus's potential ability to help this man, they're focused not on the man, but on their rules and tradition. Because another oral law that the Pharisees had was if it was not proper for a physician to heal a person on the Sabbath unless it was life-threatening. The appropriate thing in their mind for Jesus to do would have been to, told that, to tell that man, see you tomorrow. Here's what happens next. It says they're watching him, these watch watchers, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Verse 8, but he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And now there's the man wondering what in the world's going on. He's before all these people. The Pharisees are watching. Jesus says this. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? What is the essence of the Sabbath? And Mark, he adds, the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What is the heart of the Sabbath? It's submitting your life to Jesus Christ as Lord. It is helping, not hurting. It is helping, not harming. It is saving, not destroying. He looks around, and Matthew tells us that, he, there, or Mark, that there is, uh, he, was, he was angry as he saw their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. And in a moment, this man whose hand was paralyzed, shriveled up, is now fully healed. And the question is, how were the Pharisees going to respond to this? 
We see our answer. Verse 11. They were filled with fury. One translator translates this with mindless rage. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. But they're furious. They discussed with one another how they might harm Jesus. Do you see the irony in the story? The Pharisees began the story so concerned that the disciples were going to violate the Sabbath because they're picking grain. Then Jesus gives them a new principle. The essence of obedience is submitting your life to me. I am Lord of the Sabbath. At the end of the story, the Pharisees are the ones who have violated the Sabbath because they have failed to submit their lives to the Lord of the Sabbath. Do you see how ridiculous the story is from the perspective of the Pharisees? The essence of obedience to God is submitting your life to Jesus Christ as Lord. The disciples are worried about grain, not people. Brings the last principle up here. Submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord brings life not death. Brings life, not death. The solution that God offers to our problem is, is life bringing. It brings benefit, life to us and, and benefit to others. John MacArthur, as he talks about legalism, says legalism, uh, life is like there's a, there's a problem to be solved. Think about a math problem. And as long as you're trying to find out the answer to this math problem, it's, it's like you're trapped to it. You're, you're enslaved to it. You, you need to find out the answer. And so you're, you're going around and around trying to figure out the answer to the, this math problem. It reminds me of my high school years very much. And then you find the answer. There's freedom, right? It says legalism is like a person entrapped in an unsolvable math problem. They're constantly trying to figure out what's the answer to this, this problem of my sin. And they come up with equation after equation, list after list, trying to find the answer. Jesus Christ is the answer. And if you want to know, how then shall I live in light of my sinfulness? The answer is, by submitting my life to Jesus Christ as Lord. And the wonderful truth about this text is that submitting your life to Jesus Christ as Lord is not going to bring oppression. It's going to bring freedom. It's not going to bring work. It's going to bring worship. It's not going to bring death. It's going to bring life and benefit to others. If you want to know whether or not you're submitting your life to Jesus Christ as Lord, look at the people around you. Are the people around you benefited by the fact that you are submitting your life to Jesus Christ as Lord? And if the people around you are deriving no benefit from your relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord, you need to question the relationship. Let me close with one more passage. If you would indulge me, turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, I'm going to begin in verse 12. Verse 12, Isaiah says, God's speaking, he says, When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this, this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Would you like God to call your worship of him vain? 
You come into Bethany Community Church, why are you trampling the hallways? Don't bring me your vain worship. It'd be a terrible thing to hear from God. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and the Sabbath and calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity, sin, and solemn assembly. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. It is possible to keep all of the lists and for God to find it detestable. He says this, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Verse 17, learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Submitting your life to Jesus Christ as Lord is not going to, call you, is not going to cause you to become a hotch-hotcher, pointing out the faults of others. I'm not talking about godly accountability. I'm talking about hotch-hotcherism, legalism. Instead, it's going to produce life-inducing conduct on the part of believers. You're going to plead for the widow. You're going to defend the cause of the orphan. You're going to do good. The doing good is not what makes you acceptable before God, but it is an inevitable flow from the heart that's been transformed by submitting itself to Jesus Christ as Lord. The hot chachers who live in hot chach are all on hot chacher watchering watch. Watch watching the watcher who's watching the bee. You're not a hot chacher. You're lucky, you see. You're not a hot chacher because you've been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Submitting your life to Jesus Christ as Lord is the essence of obedience. It is the answer to the question, how then shall we live? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the life that we have through faith in His name, in him. We pray that you would cause us to draw closer to you, that we would be transformed by the gospel, that we continue to preach the gospel to ourselves, that our hearts can continue to draw closer to you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.